Welcome to the fifth episode of the Database Podcast. Your hosts for this podcast are the staff of the Insight Consortium at the Indiana University School of Education. I am Dr. Molly Stewart, Director of Insight. I'm Rosh Thanaudi. I'm the Data Architect on the team. And I'm Corey Hafner. I'm a Systems Analyst and Programmer. So we work as a team with districts on tackling the challenges of interoperability and data quality. Uh, we leverage the EdFi data standard in this work. And through this work, we've come to realize that there are at least three different languages that are being spoken by people that work in the space. The languages of database and coding, the language of teaching, learning, and educational leadership, and the language of research, which includes things like data science and statistics. So this podcast aims to bridge the gaps between those three areas, because the more we understand about how each group conceptualizes the same data-related topics, the more progress we can make towards solutions for educators and students that fully take advantage of best practices and cutting-edge knowledge in each of these fields of work. Um, so with that, I'll kick it over to Molly to introduce our guest for today. Today, our guest is Dr. John Watson, who's a data scientist in the Innovation Division at the San Diego County Office of Education. Nice to talk to you all. Nice to be on the podcast. And I usually give more detail on our guest's position and background in the introduction. But when I was looking at your CV, John, you have an incredible range of experiences, starting in software programming, and then you spent some time as a professor in software engineering and computer science and a couple of think tanks, and now you're serving in the public education sector. So instead of tr me trying to transform that into a succinct introduction, can you just tell us some more about your journey and how you ended up where you are today? I think about my background and I realize that I, I think all the steps that I took really do mesh together quite well, but at any given point in time, they, they really didn't. I, I felt like I was at times floundering as I worked through my, um, you know, the professional last uh, 10, 15 years. You know, I started writing software. I was writing custom applications. I had a, a, a small firm with a couple of other um, application developers. And the applications were, you know, first they were compiled applications. So we used uh, the languages of the time and, uh, you know, produced actually PC applications and then web-based applications became more popular. Um, but most of these applications started to fall into education as a primary area. Uh, um, I, we, we designed a textbook content alignment application for one of the top five book publishers. Um, then we, uh, wrote a curriculum design software application, which was used in K-12 for a startup. And then, um, you know, among the other projects, there was the development of a K-12 math uh, item bank, a test, test items. Designing 10,000 math test items, I got to say, is really hard. And we had technology that went with it. The hard part was the content. Oh my gosh. Anyway, you know, I always had an interest in AI and in human cognition. And so I, there was a point where when I started to see the convergence of these different types of technologies that we were developing, I decided, you know, maybe I should go back and get a PhD in education. So I did. I focused on cognitive development. Uh, specifically, my interest area uh, was in metacognitive uh, awareness in middle school students. So uh, the research work I did involved creating a piece of software, wouldn't you know, that tracked students as they went through a, a science unit um, about states of matter. 
and tracked their interaction with the application itself. And so it was pretty cool, web-based, and it was uh, it collected a whole lot of information, a lot of time-based information. And um, I learned a lot from that and wrote a couple of papers. And, and then I thought, oh, I, it, makes, it makes sense for me to shift now to leverage the, the PhD that I've got. And the, the university decided to fund a startup um, where we wrote a, we concentrated on adaptive assessment. And so we wrote a software application that um, after four years ended up being acquired by a larger publisher. And so, you know, in a very Walter Mitty-ish <laughs> path, I shifted gears and said, okay, what, what makes sense next? And what did was to um, teach computer science and software engineering. So I got a a uh, position as an uh, assistant professor at a local university and for four years taught computer science and software engineering and realized midway through that period of time that I, I really didn't enjoy teaching. I really like systems and, and data. And so I, I decided to shift gears one more time. And what appeared in front of me was an opportunity at a nonprofit here in Southern California um, the nonprofit's called the Institute for Evidence-Based Change, and it it uh, it still exists, but at the time it, it no longer has a data group. But at the time, we ran the largest cross-sector data system in the state of California. Uh, California does not have a statewide longitudinal data system yet; it's still working on one. But um, we operated this this system, which brought K-12 data and community college and and university data uh, together. And um, I directed the IT and analytics group. And for that seven years, we produced a lot of really interesting output. I mean, I, I think you can start to see that these pieces meld together in a kind of logical way because the very next opportunity was this opportunity uh, at uh, San Diego County Office of Ed as the data scientist. And that that's a new role. I've been here um, for a little over I guess we're coming up, it's more than two and a half years. It feels like about nine months. I feel like a newbie still. And the reason is that COVID has taken a slice out of, really out of time in, in my mind, time on, uh, you know, on the ground at, at the county offices. But, um, but that's basically the story. A lot of people that we've encountered in this space have like a similar, nobody has had like a standard path to the work that, that we're all involved in. Um, it's, it always seems like some non-standard path that people have taken and end up in education doing the types of things and answering the kinds of questions that we're interested in. So it's always great to hear that and put that out there because you know, at least when I was first interested in this work and was being pulled into it, I was like, I'm, I'm nowhere qualified to do anything like this. And the more you get into it, it's like, well, it's actually better that you come in without these preconceived notions about education because you can bring in your own background and your own unique set of experiences to help this field continue to push forward. So thanks for sharing that, John. That was really great. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that. I mean, to me, there was a lack of confidence at every step. You know, you get to a point and you think, hmm, do I fit that mold? Do I do, I do you know, am I prepared to do that next step? I was really nervous about starting the PhD program. You know, when you're in your 30s and I had finished a master's in my late 20s and I thought, gosh, can I really go back and do this? You know, I'm not going to succeed at it. And you get into that community and people rally around, you know, in your cohort, you're, you're rallying around each other. 
And I think it's true in each of those steps. And so, Rosh, I think it's great that that does tend to be appearing a common background for people in this in this area. I think that richness probably add to the systems that we produce and and our support for schools and teachers and students. So I'm really curious, how was it coming into like a public education agency from the tech world? What was that like? What are those two realms? How are they different? How are they more similar than you might think? To one degree, I uh, when you're in um, an organization, public organization, uh, you know, agency like this County Office of Ed, the world moves at a different pace, but not necessarily slower. And I didn't know how to navigate. I, I probably will never learn properly how to navigate that because at the other end of the spectrum, I've always got in my mind, which is probably a positive attribute in this role, is um, experiences. I did. There were a couple of startups along the way <laughs> that we wrote software for in that in that time when we were writing a lot of software. And operating in a startup environment is is completely opposite. Really, everything in education, certainly many things in technology, because everybody is rallying behind doing something quickly that makes a difference rapidly, and then pushing forward from that point on. Uh, in these cycles of rapid change. And that, you know, we see that play out in the methodology around software, agile technologies, agile approaches. You also see that in education now emerging. It hasn't, this is nothing new, but, you know, the concepts around design thinking, which are, you know, in effect, brainstorming and rapid development cycles, things like that. So there are some similarities there, but it's really a vastly different world. There's always this pang of, can we do this by tomorrow in my mind? <laughs> But that's not true, and it's it's just not possible, and it's not it's not the right approach. And so, yeah, there is there is that side of it. I, I think the other side is that th there are classroom teachers, principals, counselors, folks at our county office of education that have vastly more experience in the K twelve classroom and in the issues that arise around teaching and instruction and and student situations and settings that I will never understand from my angle. And it's it's really critical. I think at times, especially in the role of a data, a data scientist, that I need to step out of the way and also be listening really the entire time. If, if, I'm, if I'm missing something, it may be something that's critically important to the process or to the people involved in a, in a particular situation. We have to really respect those that are working you know, uh, 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 in the classroom, in leadership, in the districts and schools, and and where they're coming from and try to understand how we take what the, these needs as they are expressed are and actually make systems that will make a difference, um, outputs that will make a difference. So can you tell us, like how does uh, the work of a data scientist overlap or differ from um, both the work of a researcher? I, I assume you were doing uh, using statistics in your uh, PhD program, um, given your topic of interest, and then also, you know, is there overlap or difference from your work as a computer scientist or, uh, you know, software developer? I think common definitions of data science, if, if, if one looks up the term, is um, it, being able to handle all, all steps along the way of producing um, some type of analytical output from data. So, you know, that's understanding the problem, um, 
having an eye on the solution potentially and the methodology to get from data to some kind of output that's usable. Sometimes it's just raw data that's usable, but in, in most cases we're looking at um, you know, data that has to be uh, run through some algorithm in some way. And um, part of this is identifying the data. So knowing the problem, uh, trying to identify the data that is available or can be made available, you know, cleaning it, bringing it in, um, developing the model, delivering the output that's understandable and usable. And so you, it's, it's really end to end. And, and I think at the far end, it, you have to be able to understand and help with data use, data literacy. Um, that is, it's, it doesn't stop at creating the output. It, it's gotta be, the output's gotta be created with an understanding of how it's gonna be used. But then I find myself now, um, I really love going to the meetings where the output is discussed and how it's going to be used is discussed. Um, and then working towards scalability and repeatability, I think is, uh, is also critical. So it's really end to end. You had um, a speaker, I, th I think Alex Bowers from Columbia, is that right? The first podcast that you had? And, and I think he said that, and I'm paraphrase, paraphrasing, that a data scientist needs to be a translator, somebody who uh, can understand and communicate the language of data and these systems, but also talk to human beings. That really hits the mark. It doesn't describe all the technical components of data science, but you know, I'm still using software. I'm using R instead of SPSS. Um, I use Python, you know, instead of some of the languages that we developed in. Um, that that background in software development does help. You know, I can write a system that actually could scale, um, as opposed to having to think through how do I describe this to another person so that they can do the development. And, and a lot of times I think what I'm doing is producing prototype type applications that have all of the, all of those, those um, components in the sequence that I described for a, you know, a, a data problem all the way through the solution. Um, it's really nice to be able to communicate at each of those phases about what is needed and what we can do. Sometimes I can provide an example. Sometimes I'm looking for expertise to help me understand what the, the, the appropriate methodology may be. Um, and so it's just really, I think it's really for me an ideal uh, world to be working in. And you know, I, I can hear it in the way that you all are talking about your approaches to this as well. Um, it's you know, being in data and education is pretty cool at this point in time. Oh, and I also like, if I remember this right, I think uh, Alex Bowers mentioned something like um, every cabinet every district cabinet ought to have a data scientist, education data scientist on the cabinet. Yes, I'm, I'm agreeing with that principle. I think we, we need uh, folks that are aware of data and its benefits you know, and the pros and cons of different approaches um, at all levels of the organization. One of the things that, that has struck me as we kind of move into, it, into this age where there's more tooling, you've kind of mentioned that you did like custom programming before and you have different tooling that you're working with now. How do you, as like a, a person that's, you know, doing work and having to produce outputs for the folks that you're interacting with, how do you balance that with keeping pace with the changes in like data technologies and then also maybe pulling that back in 
and making decisions about when to apply those advances to the work that you're doing. Like, what does that balance look like? Because as, as we've we've been working with districts, one thing that I've been struck by, even in like four years of working in just this field with EdFi in particular, is just the pace of change. And then having to almost be like the, the dam that says, you know what, we're, we're gonna put this up as like where we're gonna stay and be static for a while while all these cool changes are happening because we want to achieve something with the stability. But I'm curious from your standpoint with like the size of the institution that you work in, like, do you have that same push or pull and, and what's your approach to incorporating the kind of really rapid advances that are happening in technology around data? First of all, um, there is the side of this that is the application developer side or, or the person designing the system. So it may not be a full application, but let's just say we need to pull data from an SFTP site, we need to move it to um, a database and then run some type, type of operations on it and produce output. The tools around those steps are constantly evolving. I mean, we've got um, any number of uh, data visualization packages. You know, I remember D3 was very popular for a period of time, still is in some circles. We have Power BI, we have Tableau, I've used Data Studio. You know, I, I've had to, to learn and use each of those tools um, over the last, I'd say, uh, since 2011, when the first of those was being re um, uh, released. And um, that evolution, that evolution just doesn't change. So I, I've been in software for more than 15 years, and, and there was something I think that I had to learn early on, and it was a very frustrating experience, and that was, as a developer, you can become very comfortable in the language that you're operating in, and very resistant to look at the new packages that are out there. Conversely, there are many times in, when you're working with applications that you may operate in one environment and you're constantly looking for what's changing out there and then you wanna try them out. So I think I've seen many times, I've probably been involved in this a few times where you see a new tool and you decide, well, we really ought to work in that tool. That's where everybody's heading. Let's, let's, let's move into that, uh, that data visualization package. And there are problems with either of those sides. You know, if you're not able to move forward, you're going to be stuck. When we look at the applications that we're working with today um, for data analysis and visualization, you know, there's rapid change in them. Jumping to another application rapidly or quickly or too quickly can cause problems because now you're learning something on the fly and you're trying to produce output. And you know, that doesn't always work well. Sometimes it works perfectly. So it's a real balancing act. I think uh, this is one case when, when Molly mentioned earlier about working for an, an agency. Um, I, I really, uh, I try to bring up new technologies and, I, and others do as well in the meetings that we have, we have these cross-divisional meetings um, among the data and technology folks. Uh, we're always talking about, um, and I'm always learning about or hearing about new technologies, but there is a logical pace of adoption of new technologies that I think um, this agency and probably most agencies um, take a sensible approach. Let's test it out with this smaller project and then let's see if we can move forward and, and if that makes sense. Um, 
I think that's appropriate, especially when the stakes are so high with some of the output. You don't want to introduce delays in projects when we're dealing with students. I think for the most part, everything that we're trying to do, or at least I'm, I, I, I touch, I'm, we're trying to get the output to the people that, that it will make a difference for in the classrooms, if that's where it is, as rapidly as possible. So to some degree, there's always this pressure in my mind that we really need to produce output that's, uh, that's efficient. These projects just can't stall because of a technology choice. So I, I think one has to keep that in mind when you're working through these, these types of situations and settings. And it's, it's really a challenge. But, but Raj, you know, isn't it a great time to be alive <laughs> to have all of this stuff bombarding us and being able to experiment with it? It's just, I guess it's nice to be in a larger community than just a small little development group when you have um, multiple parties that all have interests in these different products and things bubble up and you talk about them and, and maybe some of them take hold. Yeah, so some of it is like, is, is exciting, but it's also a little bit scary, right? Because I feel like we're rapidly approaching the point where the tooling around data and data science and data analysis is, is, is going to be as, as good as it's going to be. And the thing that's going to be lagging behind is, is the practice. So how, how do you like navigate that side of things where like, let's say, you know, there's a, a new Tableau-ish thing that comes around, right? But it's going to require some um, some change in, in method and practice to be able to use that tool. How, how do you then overcome like the hurdles in training and getting people up to speed? Because that's that's always going to be there, right? The, the pace of technology will continue to, to spin out, but then there's always this real limiter on people's ability to shift and change to be able to use that tooling and to use it effectively, even if they have an advocate, like even if they have somebody like you, you advocate for the use of this tool, but then you also have to account for um, the very real necessity in training people up. And sometimes by the time you train somebody up, there's like something new on the market already, right? And you're always, always seem like you're working with a deficit. So, so have you thought through that? Do you deal with that? And then like maybe let us know about some ways that you you've helped to stem the tide of the rapidly changing technology environment. So I look at the technology, um, the change in technology uh, as an independent force or, or occurrence than the delivery of output to uh, leadership and, and teachers and, and perhaps even students. Um, and I, and I think it's important to do that. So I, I, while the systems themselves, it ends up being this, you know, chain of systems communicating through people and, and then they, there's actions that are taken or not taken based on out, output. Um, I really do think of those as independent. Um, and I do, I do think, just, just to go back to technology very quickly, I do think that you, you can take the same um, system and evolve it over time. Systems may take different forms and still yield the same kind of utility. Maybe it's more efficient. Maybe the, the reports are better. And so there could be that independent action that takes place where, yeah, we upgraded the database and now can deliver the output, you know, in milliseconds where before we were waiting for 30 seconds on a web page to refresh. You know, those, those are all things that should, I think, naturally happen. And I'm going to separate them because I think the real challenge with our work around data is that last couple of steps. It is, um, understanding the people that will make use of these systems 
what their needs and capacities are, how much training we can give. I think we should be attempting to address fewer problems with data in, in education settings. That is, the idea of producing output that has all of these questions answered and then expecting people to that, that aren't using systems on a regular basis to make use of the output um, can be problematic. And I, I think what I've seen work um, both in the research work early on and the uh, work at the nonprofit with the community colleges um, is that fewer numbers of questions, uh, fundamental questions, um, are better than having a whole bunch of questions. Uh, if you have a, you know, a, a great problem to solve and you can contribute to the solution by providing some really usable output. The other part of that though is that, and this is like uh, around the time where the internet was really um, developing and we had so many companies, uh, you know, the internet boom, that the medical and education industries were the two industries that just were not embracing technology. Technology was kind of flowing around them and data. And there was just, you know, aside from student information systems and um, payroll systems, there just wasn't an embrace of technology and data. Um, it was just really a hard, <laughs> a hard nut to crack to try to take systems and put them in place where they just didn't exist before. And I think if you, if you look at like an internet uh, sales site, a market uh, of some sort, you have transactional data that comes in regularly, very little data quality problems. It's regular, it's, it's high frequency, large volumes of data. Analytics and data science work with that are actually pretty straightforward to do. You know, how many widgets are we selling to how many people? What A-B testing results in what kind of outcomes and how should we be marketing? And education's just a different bear. And medicine seemed to have gotten it right first. I mean, they adopted a series of standards around data structures and definitions of different medical practices and conditions, and were able to have a, a universal definition that multiple software companies provide um, systems for, but they're all supported well. And, you know, wouldn't you know, if you go into a checkup in a doctor's office, Many times they're gonna have a computer right there at the table or on an arm that's swinging out from the wall. They'll have your doctor who probably was not trained as a data person is, is gonna type in your ID and pull up your name and they'll be able to, to uh, talk to you about the background of your recent visits and be able to make sense of a lot of information that's right there in front of them because of that universal approach. That doesn't work in education that way. We don't have a universal approach. We don't have a universal uh, description of, you know, state to state, it's completely different. Um, it, um, you know, I think of standards like EDFI, you know, the, the pressure on the data standards group is around how do you make this one size fits all definition really fit all the advocates for adding certain um, data that fits one domain versus another is probably constant. And, and yet, um, you know, that is education. We do, we, we have done pretty well, you know, student information systems, a lot of them now have analytical output. Um, but we don't have a way to transfer like a cumulative file between systems. There's no single definition for saying a, a student is going to go from San Diego, California to Denver, Colorado. 
that that transfer of information just doesn't, doesn't exist right now. You would, you would probably physically send a file to the school district in this other state, or the, the parents would carry the transcript with them, and it would be hand-entered into a system. So it's really an interesting time, I think. I, I just think it's important to recognize um, the world of education and 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 where it is with with respect to other industries uh, when it comes to systems and data. How much of this do you see as being specific to the kind of data that education is dealing with? And like, even compared to health, like blood pressure is a standard measure of health, right? And we, all of the measures of education are, are basically constructed and we're even taking a step back from that to some degree. We've been seeing in higher education the reduced reliance on standards-based testing, like the SAT. Part of the goal there, which is a really laudable goal, you know, we have we have a recently re- released um, equity blueprint to try to look at how we can assist, you know, this wide, diverse array of, of student groups from homeless, juvenile court and community schools. Um, you know, all the different um, student backgrounds that, that have, that fall into these underserved communities. Well, one of the arguments for, or one of the propositions for assisting students is to say, let's, let's um, allow them to tell their individual stories um, when they move from K-12 to higher ed. How, How can we, how can we accommodate that? Because they, all students may have, approach their education world differently. I think higher ed is saying, we've got to stop looking at the standard test and we've got to start looking at the individual. Um, and so in some ways, Molly, we're moving away from the very standards that we were talking about potentially uh, adopting. Um, and so it's really, a, it's really a mix, a hard mix yeah. right now. I mean, I would argue that you know some of those standards that we were using the reason why we're not using them now is because we realize that they're not good standards. So, I mean, assess standardized assessment scores, we know that they're highly correlated with socioeconomic status. So that's right. We're not trying to evaluate a student's poverty level. We're trying to evaluate what they know and what they're capable of, of learning in the future. You know, if if your standard is culturally and socially biased, then it's not a good standard. Whereas, you know, in in health with these, I mean, there's definitely issues of cultural and social bias in health, but taking a, a measurement of body function is it's just not the same kind of construct. So I think it's, it's a good time in education to be rethinking the standards. But I mean, I don't know that we're ever gonna find something to put in that place. But with data, we do have an opportunity to record a wider view of each student than we did before. I mean, we before we were recording grades and we were recording um, learning objectives and outcomes related to learning objectives or scores on tests. Maybe, maybe part of the benefit of having uh, more vast arrays of data available to us uh, and the ability to capture more information is that we could tell a more full story for each individual student. That would be an interesting, an interesting prospect. That allows us to learn more about, about the usefulness of each kind of data. So 
Um, it, you know, if we can analyze assessment data as well as X, Y, and Z data points that we didn't have previously, we can maybe figure out what is really going on there. When I was in the PhD program, one of the big deals was Howard Gardner's multiple intelligence theory, the idea that you, you should be looking at students and seeing um, what resonates with them. And some students, it may be some type of audio prompt. And other students, they like to read or like, they like to have some kind of visual or tactile you know, expression of what they're learning. I think that's true with the adults that are using data today as well. And I think we've got to be able to produce at least be aware of the necessity to produce multiple forms of output. Sometimes a report in a tabular form, it makes a lot more sense and is more usable than a data visualization that has a, a graph that does tell a story because you know it resonates differently with, with, uh, when it comes to different modes. You know, if you are listening to educators, a lot of times they just want to see the raw data and they know what to do with it. And if you have a fancy graph, you've got to be able to drill down into the individual student because it's all about individual student intervention. So I think this is an ongoing debate, but it's definitely something we've tried to bring into our visualizations is saying, let's try to replicate those things that people are creating for themselves because that's what's most useful to them. Um, when I observe what played out because of the pandemic, when I look at what happened in the classroom and, and in the school districts, it's interesting that out of necessity to try to record how many students had access to broadband or had any connectivity at all, what devices were with which students, which students or families needed food. What I saw occurring was that in many cases, um, non-data folks resorted to the modalities that they were most comfortable with. So there was a lot of Google Forms asking questions. Do you have the support you need? You know, and, and they were broadly you know, uh, sent out to whole communities to get feedback uh, quickly because this was a necessity. A lot of the data collected at that point, including data that I thought, gosh, it'd be really great to get this in a uniform form across the entire county, wasn't because there were Excel spreadsheets and Google Sheets and um, just you know, bringing up something that can, that is usable in the shortest amount of time, because that's all you have. You have to get this, this response, um, you know, from all these parties, you have to collect it all. It has to, it has to be in some form. And this is what we resorted to. So I think understanding the audience just overall is a, is a critical part of our work and something that I think we've got to be willing to experiment around with. You know, the idea that we produce one form of output may get feedback that people aren't using it. it. It may not be because the question isn't right. It may be because the form of the output isn't suitable for that environment for some reason. I think I have less and less resistance around feelings like I produced a system. The analytics are really solid. It's in R and the, you know, the shiny output looks great. Everybody's going to love it. Well, if they don't, then I've got to, I've got to be able to work, you know, either myself or with our teams internally, we've got to figure out what does work. And that could be fixed ahead of time by sitting down with them and figuring out exactly how they want to use it. Especially because so many of our resources go into developing these solutions. I mean, oh, yeah. think of the, the mind power and the amount of expertise that we have that goes into analytical solutions. Um, 
I think I'd, I'd talked about this before uh, when we talked at an earlier, uh, earlier conversation about the fact that um, I, I was aware of a system that had been created that rolled out and it, and it cost you know, more than a year and a half of, I think, four or six people's time. Um, this, wasn't, this wasn't at SDCOE. Um, and it was only used by uh, a, you know, a couple dozen people over a year span period of time. I mean, it, that, that was the, the count of actual users logging into the system and using it. And so there's this return on investment <laughs> aspect of our work that from a, a business perspective, I think we've got to be aware of as well. You know, we, we put a lot of effort into these, these systems and into solutions and uh, you know, understanding how they're going to be used and then having some kind of gauge on whether, you know, did it work this time? And I guess the other part of this is that the communities that we have in our county, I'm sure this is true in, in uh, your region, is that We've got districts that are as small as 32 students. That's a school district. And then we have districts that are 120,000 students. And there's a, there's a dramatic difference between the support staff and resources around technology and data in those two environments. And, and it does, you know, it, it really doesn't, it's not supposed to carry down to the classroom that way, but I think it really does because you may need to have two different solutions when it comes to those two different scenarios. It just may be necessary. Maybe it won't be, <laughs> but, but the idea uh, of having a single solution that suits all, I think isn't necessarily problematic, but it's just something that we have to be aware of when we, when we create these systems. Absolutely. Um, so you, you mentioned earlier that finding one, one problem and really trying to solve that problem one at a time, I think that 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 very large district and the small district, they're going to have different problems. I think where we come in as tech people, what's really our strength is that we realize that just because we've solved one problem and this other problem and they're disjointed from the problem perspective, it might not be disjointed if we approach it from the answer perspective. So if we commingle that data, that could be a totally different answer or a totally different question that we could be solving as well. And I think it's important to keep that in mind. In a way, it would almost be interesting for us to introduce the idea of a game jam or a development jam in where you sit down with a teacher or administrator and you say, this is the data that we've had and we've solved these problems with. Do you see anything that we could put together? What are some of the questions we can solve this problem working the opposite way? I think the carpet salesman analogy is pretty good here. You come in with our swatch book. And we say, we've got these data and these different displays, and this is what's worked in this side and uh, this center and uh, not worked somewhere else. You know, what do you think? Um, I'm partly joking about that, but I think the idea of being accepting, um, you know, really listening, at, I think at that point in time, that you have to go in understanding that the, where you're pointed may need to repoint as a result of what you experience on the ground. And I, I also think, um, what you just described as going out and meeting with the faculty, let's say, or the leadership at a, at a school site or a district is probably important for us that work with data and actually develop the technology to do. Because to get a sense of the setting and the pace in which people operate, the 
the tools that they have. Again, I'll go back to, you know, you can design a piece of software, but if, if all they use is a tablet in the classroom and we're expecting them to do a lot of data entry, that's problematic. You may never see it if you're sitting, you know, behind the scenes developing the output. You have to actually be there to understand the surrounding. Oh my gosh, they've they've got Chrome tablets that they're all using and we're expecting them to enter, you know, <laughs> scads of data every single day. That's just not going to work. But I guess we're also trying to create systems that make a difference that can be measured in a uniform way. I mean, if you want to if you wanted to have a research study to show the efficacy of some system that you developed and some questions that you're asking, you really want to have the data come in in, in a standard form. I'm not, and, and so there's this push and pull that we're dealing with. I think it's a matter of having a, a well-defined problem, good communication and understanding around the problem and the solution, and really identifying something that works. I'm going to put in a shameless plug here for for edify a little bit because i like a lot of what you've said so you brought up earlier the idea of handing off a student's record might happen manually and physically and that's still a a real world thing today and it absolutely is and i bring up these things all the time like that exact example just the other day talking about edify with people about what excites me about it and why i love it is the idea that like we're still handing things off physically in 2022 And that's ridiculous. And imagine all the things that get lost about a student and the important information and how poorly we're serving those students that might have to move in the middle of a school year or whatever else. And I I love that EdFi gives you a way that says everything about the student is in a standard form and I can hit this button and you can get it all and put it into your system. And now you know everything that I knew about that student. Yeah, it, it is great, not just to have the standard, but to have the systems, um, you said the whole ecosystem around um, the standard, the users on all sides, the uh, uh, application uh, publishers, those that are relying on the standard to be able to produce analytics in our case, and um, those that are looking for a uniform way to, to hold uh, student information. I mean, I adopting standards universally within education are really critical to being able to work across uh, states and um, across sectors. I mean, the idea of us uh, at a county that's a county office of education that really works with K-12 districts, but being able to move data up into the next sectors, uh, community college and higher ed, that'd be really cool to be able to do. We just don't have that happening today. I'll be able to run this algorithm. I mean, I'd love to just absorb some large machinery processing time with that problem. Here are 500,000 students in San Diego, California, you know, the county. Tell me a little bit about them that I can't tell by looking at the data or the, the reports that I get, you know, that are standard from the state. Just give me a glimpse at really what's going on, you know, uh, within the data underneath it all. Um, so that's out I think there. there's some uh, early work on that. Uh, Ryan Baker has done some large um, scale analysis. Yeah, using machine learning on, um, I think it was just uh, one large district because you know getting getting that amount of data in a standardized fashion across multiple districts would be difficult. Um, yeah. But you know, reading that work was really interesting for me in thinking about what we're trying to do with 
uh, the EDFI data standard and with making data available in near real time to our uh, district members and kind of trying to pull that data analysis of machine learning together with what can, can that analysis also be done in near real time? I mean, this is really getting way beyond the scope of this podcast topic. I think all of us that work in, in tech and especially with large sets of data have had the same pie in the sky, like, oh, if I could just get it all together and I could answer so many questions. But also we're the even... time aspect, like yeah, people have done it with a data set, but then that data is already yep. old, right? Yep. Yeah, I think you've, you, you've hit the nail on the head with respect to my, my real intrigue about this is we look at data usually one academic year at a time. In real time is the real time data that's available daily, weekly, whatever it is, grading period wise, um, interim assessment wise over that academic year. And I always think about, you know, there are all kinds of effects that we're not able to see because we don't look at data over time, meaning, you know, what happens if a student has X and Y experiences in fourth and fifth grade and does that have any you know, we, we used to say that algebra, having algebra one experience at the end of seventh or eighth grade is really critical to positive outcomes in high school and beyond. And that was like this one gate, gatekeeper <laughs> analytical item that was, you know, we had a lot of research around it and it, it all makes sense. I just think, gosh, there's gotta be, gotta be many others, but you're, you're right about the real time aspects as well. Sometimes getting the answer back, you know, sooner than waiting for the end of the year we're dealing with the difference between leading indicators and lagging indicators in our output. And, and that's critical to being able to have some kind of effect in the middle of the school year to be able to do that. Yeah. Especially when it's an indicator that isn't like algebra is a good example of, you know, you can know which students are enrolled in that class. Right. But there are other things where you may not have, you know, that, maybe three weeks into the semester, something happened. And if you knew that it happened, then you could do something about it. But if you don't know that it happened until the end, it's too late. So yeah, I, I think we are seeing a prevalence of early warning systems, which is the ideal place for us to be, I suppose, if we're not able to get all of the data for all periods of time, then at least if we can get some of this data in real time uh, and be able to perform analysis on it and quickly return the results, then it will make a difference. I, I, I totally believe in that. Earlier, um, we were talking about conversations with educators about what they need, how they want to see things. So I'm interested to hear what you think in terms of how much do educators need to understand the tech behind the data because, and I'll say why I think um, it's important. I, th I think understanding how data flows, why certain data entry is going to come up in output, you know, how that data kind of flows through the student information system and possibly through an API or uh, however it's traveling, let's say. It seems to me that 
edu the educators we've talked to who have started to really get in into understanding the tech conceptually, not, you know, they're not necessarily using it hands-on, but the conceptual understanding of how that works, I think has a real impact on the connections that then the data folks and the tech folks can have in terms of building things that really, really work. So I'm curious um, if you have thoughts on, on that. I think it's important for all in the, in the, you know, that linkage of the data from its starting point to its final use. And even let's say evaluators or leadership that are looking at the effects of what is playing out with respect to some kind of system or, or program, you know, did it make a difference? That there's an understanding that data has value. And I think understanding the flow of data from beginning to end, how hard it is to get the data through these multiple steps. I absolutely think the data flow is integral in the discussion with, with educators as much as possible around the use of data. Because it's part of the story, it's part of data literacy, I think, understanding that. For education, the data can make the difference between us solving a problem or not. And um, some of these problems are critical. We should be leveraging data and using it as best possible not to overwhelm us with it, but to, to, to solve some of the problems we have. I think just fundamentally, I, I'd agree with you if, if agreeing with you is saying that um, understanding the, the, the path of data, where it comes from and how it's used it, it is critical to the process wherever possible. I would probably go a step further in the sense of, um, you know, helping people understand like why why are we using the EdFi data standard? Why are we using, you know, why is there this limitation to what we're doing, helping people to understand not just the limitations, which are important, but also the possibilities. So once they understand, oh, the data is flowing like this or in this place, or this is how someone could query it, it kind of expands their idea of the possible solutions, which maybe goes back to what Corey was saying about, you know, having that conversation about starting at, starting at the solution. You know, um, there's a constant problem that plagues us working with data and education, that's data quality. It's, it's, another, it's another aspect of discussing the data flow from beginning to end that I think is critical in the discussion. I mean, most student information systems have a lot of open-ended fields. So I'll say, you know, what was the reason for whatever, some condition, discipline, attendance, something in a, in a grade book. And, you know, it comes to EdFi and we're trying to, one of the biggest challenges to get to getting data in EdFi is, is that initial step of descriptor mapping. And oftentimes I think one would see working with EdFi, if you had a multitude of districts and you're pulling data in, you know, a, a, a collaborative project or some kind of larger project that had multiple sites, that 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 um, process would be different in each of those cases. They're just nuances that play out, e even in one district right next to another, that that appear in the data differently. And so, um, I think everyone understanding um, data quality, I guess, somehow without mentioning the word data quality. 
um, in that flow is also important because in many cases, we're trying to get to a point, I think, where it's not an administrative office that's entering all of the data that teachers ultimately will be, I mean, there's mostly grade book, I guess there's also assignment uh, um, entry, assessment results, um, but we'd like to have as clean a, as clean data as we can possibly achieve. And, uh, and so I think understanding that process for that reason is also important and, and critical. So Molly, I say yes. Have the story of the data digestive system on a chart that you can show <laughs> in the classroom that, that would resonate with that. <laughs> that is yeah, my goal. <laughs> I absolutely agree with that. I just think that that's a hard sell some of the time because especially whenever we're working in education because we already ask teachers to do so much and it's yeah. so hard to put something else on their plate and be like, but imagine what you can do if you just also understood this other really hard piece. <laughs> I mean, but so, I mean, I like some people think theoretically. Mm -hmm. And if you understand the theory or what's going on underneath, mm -hmm. understanding all the stuff on top becomes easier. Oh, so yeah. it's not that way for everybody I know, but sometimes I think having that conversation is like what makes the light bulb go off. I think that understanding the data side of things, while it might be overwhelming at the start, will eventually make things a lot easier for them as more things are implemented as well. So my hope for this would be that in some ways we make their work, some aspects of the work more efficient through the use of systems and data. And I don't know that it's going to play out that way in the short term, because it just seems like we're adding additional duties and that we don't want either in the use of reports that are coming out and or the data entry side but um yeah so at the beginning you talked about the the three sides being the language of database and code teaching learning and education leadership and then research data science and statistics so i, I definitely fall into um the two categories involving technology the database and code and then the research data science and and well, you statistics. kind of fall into all three of them since you've also. <laughs> I, I well, it's totally different teaching adults than it is teaching oh, yeah. uh, younger students for sure. Um, but but I I probably have because of that a greater respect for those that are in the classroom uh, than I would have if I hadn't taught. So I guess that leads us to um, the last question I like to ask everyone. So, is there any big idea or even simple idea that you want the other two sides of this to really understand from a data science point of view? Um, so as far as bridging these gaps, I, I think some of the topics that we talked about along, you know, throughout this, this session um, really hit on these, either bringing those three together so that there is agility in the process of producing output that's usable by the by the end user which in in most cases is either leadership or uh, teachers and or counselors in schools i do think i've come back probably several times if, if i reflect on what we've talked through about keeping the problems as simple as possible um, while still keeping them complex enough to make a difference or multifaceted enough to make a difference that i think i think that's critical at this juncture so I suppose those are the two biggest 
bridges uh, or commonalities between these is um, is agility and simplicity. I think they're really good ideas just from what we've talked about today, to be honest. Yeah, and makes sense to us based on what we've experienced as well. So yeah, and I, I, I think, think these are both yeah. pra practical objectives, you know, yeah. to be able to to achieve the ability to be agile from the technical side. Um, and and also to really make something that's going to uh, be able to potentially lead to a difference that's positive, you know, is a goal that we all want to see. It's just so disappointing, or it would be disappointing if one created something and then you did you don't get to see it through to its final. I mean, that that last step is the is the piece that's really going to make the difference for us to produce output that um, someone in a classroom, someone in leadership can actually make use of. And they say at the end of the day, at the end of the academic year, or after a couple of years, gosh, wow, what we, what we, I don't know how we operated before we got that output. Uh, it just made such a difference for us. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been great talking to you. I appreciate it from my side. It's nice to be able to chat with you all. And nice to have a conversation today though. Mm -hmm.